On December 7th, I was invited to speak to the Rochester Committee on Latin America, or RACLA, based out of Rochester, New York. I have not spoken much about President Ziamata and her government since they took office in January of this year. This is because it has been nice to breathe a bit and give some time for the new administration to settle. But as it's been settling, U.S. opposition has as well. Led largely by the U.S. Embassy in Tegucigalpa, there has been significant opposition to even small changes that President Ziamata's government hoped and still hopes to implement. And the U.S. opposition is obviously one major element as to why the new administration has not been able to achieve its proposed changes thus far. But it's certainly not the only one. The government has also made mistakes. Honduran grassroots and social movement activists have claimed that the government is continuing some of the practices from previous governments. This has been unfortunate and disappointing to see. But today, I want to highlight the U.S. opposition to the small changes that President Ziamara has been somewhat successful at implementing. In many ways, the discussion about President Ziamara's ability to push forward her campaign promises in Honduras is very timely in the broader Latin American context. Most recently, in Peru, there was a coup against the weak government of President Pedro Castillo. Now, I'm not as familiar with the ins and outs of President Castillo and his political agenda, but I think Peru, like Honduras, is another example of the de facto power that global economic interests and the national elite have and hold in many countries in Latin America. When a government with a different vision, a more progressive vision, puts forward a different way of doing things, or even thinking about things, it is met by powerful and established forces that make it difficult or impossible to change the status quo. One of these powerful forces are elements of the U.S. government and U.S. military. Today, I'm going to share my presentation to Rakla, where I discuss the U.S. opposition to a few reforms that President Ziamara's government has implemented, as per her campaign platform and her political promises made at the beginning of the year. Welcome to the Honduras Now podcast. I'm your host, Karen Spring. In each episode, I will be sharing human rights stories from Honduras and connecting them to global issues and North American policy. Thank you so much for listening. I'm first going to introduce myself. I'm Tom Ward. I'm the current convener for the Register Committee on Latin America. And I want to say hello and welcome to all of you joining us tonight. And without further ado, let me introduce Karen to you. She's um, been with us before. Karen's presentation tonight is going to focus primarily on um, how the U.S. efforts are attempting to uh, stop many of the reforms that the new president, democratically elected president, I might add, Gia Mora, is trying to implement with her administration. Um, they have gotten some through, some good um, positive uh, 
policies as well. And Karen will talk about those. And so um, without uh, further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Karen Spring. Thank you, Karen. Thanks so much, Tom, uh, for the introduction and uh, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for inviting me. So my name's Karen and calling you or talking to you sitting in a house in Toronto, Canada, and I'm headed to Honduras tomorrow. So I have an early flight, like Tom mentioned, but I'm looking forward to escaping the freezing cold and getting back to the heat. So thanks again to Rockliffe for organizing tonight and for doing a great job promoting the event. You know, one of the things that I want to kind of start is just talking a little bit about the victory of the new president of the, well, she's not really that new anymore. She's almost been in office now for a year. Ziamara Castro is the president of Honduras. She's the first woman president of Honduras, which is very, very exciting for women in Honduras and just Hondurans in general. She basically ran over almost a year ago today, she won the elections and in, in quite a landslide victory for her and the platform that she put forward. And, you know, people were very, very hopeful and are still hopeful that her government will be able to overcome the challenges that it faces so that they can push through some of the reforms and some of the policies that she ran on. So she took office in January. So it's almost been a year. It'll be a year next January. And um, she had a whole, uh, just so many campaign promises um, and I'm just going to highlight a couple because they're very inspiring. And I think that it's always important for any progressive government that comes to power to have a very inspiring agenda and aspirations and goals. And I think that's something that she had and the party had and lots of people in her government. So some of the things that she promised to do, which there's a whole slew of things that she promised to do, but I'm going to focus on the ones that are more relevant to sort of like global issues and just US policy and then human rights as well, since I work mostly in human rights and so does the Honduras Solidarity Network. So basically some of the things that she did, I'm just gonna like list off a couple of things. So she wanted to, she promised to establish stronger, stronger ties with China, which of course is not something that the US is very happy about or would be very happy about. She promised to um, legislate and implement uh, policies regarding the morning, <clears throat> excuse me, the morning after pill for women. But this was something that was actually legal before the coup in 2009. And Ziamata said that she wanted to bring that back for women and the and it was actually outlawed after the coup. She wanted to send the military back to their barracks and get them off the streets, which is obviously something that is really exciting and important to do because, you know, the military shouldn't be on the streets, shouldn't have policing functions. She actually committed to reviewing CAFTA and the free trade agreements, which is something that, you know, Honduras has never really benefited from. It's been much more to the benefit of U.S. companies. She also said that she was going to reform the energy law. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. It's hard to understand, but I'll talk about what that means and, and what are the challenges with doing that. She said she'd overturn the ZA law. The ZAs are the zones of economic development and employment, which are these, and I'm not sure if anyone here has heard about the ZAs, but the ZAs are like model cities. They're basically private cities, charter cities. They have a bunch of different names, but um, they're very, very widely promoted and pushed by libertarians, a lot of libertarians. And it basically means uh, what it's meant, at least in the legislation that was passed after the coup, was is that you carve off a chunk of Honduran territory and hand it over to the highest bidder. 
and they can create their own court system, their own policing system, their own social security, their own system, their own courts, their own police, their own like national anthem, like everything. They're basically their own nation within the borders of Honduras. And so she promised to overturn that legislation that was pushed forward by the post-coup government. And she also wanted to establish the Commission Against Impunity and Corruption in Honduras, which is modeled off of the Guatemala CICIG, which is no longer exists, unfortunately, but basically uh, an, an internationally funded uh, body that sort of investigates corruption and, um, and impunity in the country. When she you know, put forward this platform along with her party and everybody that sort of ran under her and the, and the Libre Party, which is the party she is part of, People were really hopeful. I mean, these are very, very, I think people spent years after the coup, 12 years under a narco dictatorship. A lot of you and Rockla certainly really, really followed what was going on in the country and all of the abuses that took place, the rise of like a very corrupt state that was run by drug traffickers. Juan Orlando Hernandez, the former president, he left office the day that Ziamata took, obviously took power. And then the day he left office, the U.S. Justice Department signed a request for his extradition to face drug trafficking charges in the U.S. So he is now in prison in the in the U.S. Uh, awaiting trial for uh, drug trafficking charges and uh, related weapons charges. So, you know, if you have a president that literally the day that he steps out of office, an eight term presidency, and then he's asked for extradition by the United States, who supported and backed him through the eight years he was in power, you can only imagine the crimes that he committed while he was in power. And I think drug trafficking is probably the less of his crimes, um, even though obviously it's devastating for the country and for people that, you know, involved in the drug trade, but also consume drugs on a, across the Americas. But you can imagine, you know, what it, all the measures that he went to to maintain his power, which wasn't just about his political power, but was about his economic power and controlling the drug cartels in the country for his own economic benefit. So you can imagine what Hondurans like suffered if that if the president alone and what he was involved in doesn't speak about or doesn't give an indication of what Hondurans were dealing with and what were they were so tired of. You you know that they were facing also like massive human rights violations. Honduras became the most dangerous country in the Western or in the world um, at, at the peak of his uh, dictatorship. Right after the coup, it became one of the most dangerous countries to be an environmentalist, a journalist, a land defender, and so many people lost their lives um, under his regime. So Viamata's platform is very inspiring. And so she was widely voted for and widely supported by the Honduran population. So, you know, she's taken power since. So January 27th, I think, of this year. And she's just faced, her government has faced endless challenges. And obviously, it's not easy taking over a government that's been controlled by a drug cartel for so long. And the challenges are just, I'm going to name a couple, the ones that I think are the most important. She basically took over a government and a state that is totally broke. I mean, all of the money that the previous governments following the coup, you know, that the US and Canada supported, kept funding, kept sending more money to, you know, there's just endless corruption that took place in that government and overspending as well, especially on a military, on the military and, and policing that obviously had no effect for what it was intended to do, which was 
allegedly to make Honduras a safer place for its citizens. Instead, money was spent on basically promoting a military and police that were also trafficking drugs along with the president, while they were also squashing any protests or any uh, opposition to the government and its policies. So I think the amount of debt that Ziamara has to deal with, she inherited a state that is totally broke. And I think that um, I think that it's estimated, and this isn't a very good measurement, but I'm not really sure how else to explain it. But Honduras in their external and internal debt, 56, it totals 56.7% of their GDP or $15.68 billion is what Honduras owes, which I know is hard to conceptualize. But I mean, I'm sure the United States owes more than that and has more debt than that, much more. But the thing is, is that Honduras has a very little income. They don't have very strong tax collection. So it's very difficult. They're also paying like crazy interest rates on these loans. So that's a huge problem for, for Ziamada in implementing the reforms that she outlined in her platform. She also inherited a state that's totally infiltrated by organized crime. I mean, consistently, we and still today, we're, we, we hear all about, you know, mayors and police officers, groups of police officers, military that are involved in drug trafficking and still involved in drug, tra- drug trafficking. And so she is responsible. She, you know, she is head of the armed forces and the minister of security who runs the police is also under her command. But she really has no control over a lot of these rogue you know, groups and organized criminal groups that are operating inside the police and military still. So it's been a huge problem across the board in the country for security and also for repression against uh, different populations, especially like land defenders, for example, which continues to be a problem under Ziamada's government because she, again, doesn't have full control of the military and police. She also has a very weak government. She doesn't control all branches of government. She is head of the executive branch, but even with her being ahead of this, the executive branch, she still has parts that are offices or institutions that are under her command that she doesn't have full control under or, or over. She doesn't control Congress or the Libre Party, which is her party, doesn't have full control over Congress. So they're constantly negotiating and trying to figure out how to pass bills that are part of her platform, but you know, is constantly facing and the United States plays a huge role in undermining what the Congress is trying to do when they when the Libre Party is able to put forward something that sort of promotes Ziamada's uh, platform. And there are constant divisions. And um, these are obviously, these are sort of provoked as well by the US, which I'll get into a little bit, a little bit more. And uh, she also doesn't control the judiciary, which is huge, and the attorney general's office, which are the two bodies that basically decide what will be investigated and when, and who goes to prison and who doesn't. So that's very important for criminalizing protests and criminalizing land offenders. Um, Ziamata has no power over that. Those are still under the control of people that were appointed by the narco dictatorship and by Juan Orlando Hernandez and people that are still loyal to him, despite the fact that he's in prison. Just, you know, they put the head of the cartel in prison, but all of the arms and legs and the tentacles of the of the narco dictatorship are still very much alive. And so that is definitely the case with the judiciary and the, and the attorney general's office. Um, and despite the fact that she's sort of chief of the armed forces, you know, the armed forces have not changed at all and they haven't been cleaned up. And they're the same armed forces that supported the coup and that were involved in drug trafficking and and sort of promoted and kept Juan Orlando Nannis in power despite his whole range of abuses. So, I mean, you have this great platform, she gets to power and she's faced with all of these challenges that are constantly undermining any sort of ability for her to really push through 
her and her government to push through any um, significant changes and to promote her platform. And despite that, there are some things that they've done that, and the government has done um, that is that are very inspirational and that they have been able to achieve. And I'm going to mention those. And I think I'm going to I'm going to pick a couple because there are certain things that Ziamara's government has been able to implement that are incredible, but that the U.S. is constantly undermining because they don't like these policies. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you remember when I think in 2017 and even back to 2014, there was this whole the U.S. Uh, media, mainstream media was really focused on all these unaccompanied minors that were coming from Honduras and Central America and that were making their way to the border. And then they put together the Biden plan and to sort of deal with the unaccompanied minors at the border to address migration. And like that didn't work. And then so now with the migration, following all the migration at the U.S. and Mexico border, um, Vice President Kamala Harris has put together this call to action that she launched in May of last year, basically saying that they're going to address the root causes of migration. And so I think they've designated billions of dollars to this call to action for the Northern Triangle countries, which the Northern Triangle countries are El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. And they're going to stop uh, migration or address these so-called root causes of migration. And Kamala Harris is under the impression that companies like Gap and Visa and Microsoft and Nespresso can, are some of the great companies that are going to help deal with these root causes of migration. So I mentioned that because, you know, that there's a whole big chunk of money that's being promised to the Northern Triangle countries. And I would argue that the U.S. is sort of using that, amongst other things, to sort of extort the Ziomara government into doing things or not doing things that are against the interest. Because you have this Honduran government that is totally broke because of a narco dictatorship that it like stole all the money, that misspent a lot of the money that the U.S. supported and backed for so long in, in this condition where they have no money and they really want to you know, address and make changes that the Honduran people really badly need. And then you have the U.S. saying, well, we have all this money, but then they're kind of dangling in their faces saying, you know, we'll give it to you, but you have to do certain things or you're not allowed to do certain things. And I'm going to go through some of the things that they're not, they haven't liked so far, and they've been very vocal about it. And it's very problematic and it's very worrisome because, you know, people are under the impression in the U.S. that, you know, the narco dictatorship's out of power now. Honduras is great. Honduras has a a democratic socialist government. It's progressive government. It cares about human rights. So we can move on to other countries now and we don't have to worry about Honduras. But it's actually a really, really important time to keep watching Honduras because of how all the challenges that the government is facing and just the the historical presence of the United States in Honduras has always undermined anything progressive or anything that sort of challenges U.S. economic interests in Honduras, but not just Honduras, in the region. Because Honduras has been sort of the the country where a lot of, where the U.S. has sort of launched a lot of its wars in the past. It's the home to the largest U.S. military base in the region. And so the U.S. is not going to let any government do whatever they want in Honduras. You know, they don't really do that anywhere, but they're specifically not going to allow it in Honduras. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about what they have opposed and what Ziamat has been able to do and just how much backlash she's getting from the U.S. over it. So what's going on is the U.S., when Ziamat won, interestingly enough, Congressional offices in the U.S. were telling us that the State Department was sort of going around to congressional offices and saying, you know what, we really are, are we, we really support Ziamara. You need to support her. She's going to do great things. And so there was this, and, and Kamala Harris even went to her inauguration 
And so there was this impression that the U.S. was starting off well, and everyone was sort of suspicious about it because the U.S. doesn't just go and support a progressive government that identifies as democratic socialists out of nowhere. But it was sort of like positive. It was like, okay, you know, we'll see how this goes. This is this is positive, you know, obviously suspicious at the same time. But what's happening now is the U.S. is really not liking some of the things that Ziamara promised that she would do. And I think the U.S. kind of bet that she wouldn't be able to do it and that they would work really hard to undermine her, her agenda and undermine her government. And that's exactly what they're doing. So the U.S. is now teaming up with the opposition, which is the narco national party, basically a party that is totally infiltrated by organized crime. It was Juan Orlando Nades's party. And they're teaming up with the government sort of enemies or people that are, you know, either they're NGOs that the State Department has funded for many years. They're now sort of raising their voice and being very critical of Ziamara. And so the U.S. is sort of, they're, they're, I don't think they necessarily support the National Party, which was the narco party that I talked about that was in power since the coup. But they're sort of taking advantage of the fact that, the, that they're the opposition now, and they're sort of mixing their message against the government to sort of go at the Ziamara government. And so you have this really, really powerful opposition of these really, really incredible and powerful forces that are criticizing everything her government does. So I'm talking the oligarchs, the very wealthy families that have controlled Honduras for many, many years. Um, there's like 12 to 13 families. I'm talking about the military, that obviously any Latin American country is always going to be worried about what their military says and supports because the military has just so much tremendous power, not just in Latin America, but also in the United States. And they're also, uh, and then I mentioned the National Party. And so, you know, along with the U.S. government, those are the actors. They're all sort of working together to really undermine the government. And it's very concerning because it, 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 even, it makes a weak government even weaker. And it doesn't really give them any breathing room either to make mistakes. And every government's going to make mistakes. So I'm going to focus on three key policies and promises that Ziamara made during her campaign and the ones that she's been able to fulfill. And then I'm going to talk about what the U.S. is doing to undermine that. that. So the first one I want to talk about is the temporary labor law. The temporary labor law was passed under the narco dictatorship after the coup, and it was a heyday for U.S. companies. It was basically eliminated any benefits or any labor labor laws for transnational companies. So I'm talking about textile companies. I, I'm Canadian, so I always think of Gildan. But if people follow Haiti at all, they know that Gildan is a very, very bad company. It's a large um, sweatshop company. There's a couple of, a Sanmar is another one that's a U.S. textile company. The U.S. specifically, they really benefited from this temporary labor law because it basically said that they could contract Honduran workers for four hours a day, pay them less than minimum wage, and they didn't have to pay any benefits or any pension or anything, any sick days, no vacation days, nothing. And so it was great for these companies, but it was terrible for Honduran workers. And so the Ziamara government recognized that as being something that was very damaging because it undermines the labor movement. It undermines job security for workers. And since, you know, jobs and unemployment are a major driver of migration, the Ziamara government said, you know what, we're going to overturn that law. And then these, these companies are going to have to abide by the labor law. The labor law that's been, you know, that it sort of, it, it, the, the temporary labor law took over or trumped the labor law. And so they overturned it and they're like, okay, you got to abide by the labor law now, like the regular labor law. And so, and since they did that, the US government has taken every opportunity possible, led by the ambassador, to talk about how much that temporary labor law undermines investment in Honduras. 
And if we're thinking about Kamala Harris's promise and, and call to action with all these companies like Pepsi and Microsoft and all of these big companies that are allegedly going to bring Honduras out of poverty and stop migration, none of these companies are going to invest in Honduras if they don't have like a very exploitive labor law that lets them pay Honduran workers nothing so that they can you know, continue profiting off of investing there. And so the U.S. ambassador has just been really, really vocal and in State Department reports about how this is undermining investment in Honduras and being very critical of it and saying that it's damaging, it's damaging relations and dam damaging um, the willingness of companies to invest in Honduras. And so I'm just going to give example of the U.S. hypocrisy as the Kamala Harris government is, you know, talking about addressing the root causes of migration, which one of them is unemployment or underemployment, people not having jobs, you grad student, young people graduate from university, they, they, they can't get a job, they drop resumes off everywhere, they spend, you know, months and months and months dropping resumes off, they can't get a job, there's no jobs. And the jobs that they do get are terrible for in terms of, um, in terms of conditions and the exploitive nature of a lot of these companies, because people, the companies know that there's just so many people that want jobs, they take advantage of that desperation. And so they just fire people and hire people and fire them if they don't like it and hire, hire someone to replace them. You know, when they overturn the temporary labor law, the US, the US is actually building a new embassy in Tegucigalpa, a huge, gigantic building. They've hired Honduran uh, workers to build this embassy. And they, when they overturned a temporary labor law, these workers started saying, okay, well, you now you have to, you know, hire us under the normal labor law. You know, we're, that means you have to pay minimum wage. That means you have to pay us vacations. That means you have to pay us pensions. And they wouldn't do it. And the U.S. company that's building the uh, new U.S. embassy, uh, BL Harbert, which I, apparently builds embassies all over the world. Basically, the workers went on strike and they just refused to sit down in the negotiating table. And so the workers, the workers that went on strike, they were fired and replaced by other workers. And they still don't want to pay the benefits to these workers at all. So it's, it's interesting because as much as the U.S. talks about enforcing the rule of law and getting these companies to abide by the law, their own companies don't want to abide by the law and, and pay the, the, the benefits to workers, including the ones that are building their own embassy where they're going to conduct all of their diplomatic relations out of. Also, Makila companies or sweatshop companies as well, they're laying massive layoffs in a lot of these factories because they no longer have the temporary labor law to exploit workers. And so they're laying off like hundreds of workers in these factories. And women's organization that works with a lot of these workers is saying, you know what, we we want these factories to be here, but we want them to give us good, good uh, salaries and we want decent working conditions, which is not a lot to ask. So the U.S. Embassy has been very vocal against this temporary labor law, overturning the temporary labor law and having to abide by the actual labor law, which protects workers. Another thing that it's uh, the U.S. Embassy has done to really interfere in Ziamara's, sorry, another thing that Ziamara promised that she would do that she did do through Congress is, is that she promised to overturn the ZEDE law. That's the model cities, the private city law. So they overturned it in Congress. And it still is not fully overturned yet, but there's important steps have been made to do that. And the U.S. Embassy, there's this one company that is a model city. It's called Zede Prospera, based in the Bay Islands, the beautiful Bay Islands of Honduras and Roatan, which is where a lot of people, if they visited Honduras, would have gone to the, that place. A lot of cruise ships stop there. And so... Um, these U.S. investors are invested in and have uh, obtained land to build a Zede 
in, in Roatan. And when the Honduran government overturned the Zede law, these, these investors of this Zede Prospera basically threatened the government that they were going to file suit against the uh, Honduran government under CAFTA and sue the and sue the government for taking away their ability to, well, for the money that they've lost in their investment and their ability to make money in the future. So right now, this company is has filed a, a notice of arbitration under CAFTA, which means it's suing the Honduran government for lost profits. And they're saying that they've lost $10.7 billion. And that's how much they're suing the Honduran government for. And I should say that Zede Prospera is actually American owned. Um, the companies are based in the US. I think Delaware is one. Um, there's three, two or three companies. They're based in different parts of um, the US. And so they're, they themselves are, um, are suing the Honduran government, but it goes beyond that. As the, I mean, the Zedes in Honduras are, have always been very, very unpopular. Widespread, just like rejection of Zedes from the very beginning that they were proposed after the coup. And, you know, there's been years and years and years of protesting. In fact, I remember and sitting, standing outside the courthouse every day protesting it. And so, you know, 10 years later, it's Hondurans were still battling the Zedes. And so Ziamara takes power and says, we're getting rid of this, this legislation. This is ridiculous. So they overturn it. And so as the Zedes, this Zede Prospera is threatening to sue the Ziamara government for lost profits. You have these two U.S. senators. One is uh, Senator Hager, Hagerty from Tennessee and Senator Cardin from Maryland. And they wrote a public letter recently basically criticizing the reforms that overturned the Zedes, saying that they were threatening U.S. interests and that they were disappointed that the government was threatening U.S. interests. And that was very disappointing to see, especially out of Senator Cardin, because he has been very supportive in the past of actions that we've done um, in Honduras. And But it goes to show you just you know, how much the U.S. is not willing to let Ziamara implement these important things and support what the Honduran people want and what the Honduran people have asked for for so long. And I just want to mention really quickly that as, like almost immediately before the Zede Prospera announced they were suing the Honduran government, the U.S. embassy tweeted that they had met with the investors of the Zede Prospera, basically throwing fuel on the fire that they, you know, were supporting the Zede, they were supporting the investors and that the investors should keep going in Honduras, despite the fact that like nobody wants them there. And I just want to take this really quick opportunity to say that um, the School of America's Watch, it's a fantastic US-based organization. They put out an action recently asking people to sign on to an action to denounce the role of the US in the Zedes and promoting the Zedes. Did I highly encourage people to uh, join us in that action and promote it as much as they can. So the final sort of thing I wanted to mention is, and probably for me the most important and definitely something that the US is really, really unhappy about, probably the most unhappy about is this energy law that uh, Ziamara has passed, the Ziamara government through the Congress has passed. And it's interesting, I'm gonna say the name of the law because I think it's very telling about what Ziamara was trying to do. It's very long. So I never really say it ever, but um, it's called the special law to guarantee electricity as a common good for national security and as an economic and social human right. That's actually what the law is called. Um, and so basically what they wanted to do is they wanted to roll back privatization of Honduras's energy generation, transmission and distribution which is basically the whole energy grid, everything. So basically this law is trying to roll back privatization. Some of the companies that have most benefited from 
the energy privatization are U.S. companies. So solar, wind, which people usually are very supportive of solar and wind, but the way that solar and wind energy projects in Honduras have been implemented is not, it's usually through the oligarchs, through the wealthy families, and they create a lot of land problems because they, you need land to have a whole bunch of different solar, put up different solar panels and also uh, wind turbines. So basically what this new law is doing is, is that Ziomata said, okay, any Honduran families that consume less than 150 kilowatts of energy a month, they're all gonna get free energy. So this has benefited 1.2 million families around Honduras, which if you ask people why they were, you know, some of the reasons why they were leaving Honduras and fleeing to the U.S. and U.S.-Mexico border, they would say that energy costs were just too much. They were too high because of the privatization of the energy, energy generation mostly. And so this has been hugely beneficial to many Honduran families. And then Ziamat also said, you know what, we can't pay these high energy costs that these private energy generation companies are charging the state to generate electricity. So she said, we're going to start renegotiating those contracts and we're going to lower the amount of money that these companies are making and that the state is paying them to make the electricity. And so that's what they're in the process of doing. And two energy companies that are not in agreement with having, you know, not making millions of dollars off of the backs of Honduran people have now decided that they're going to also potentially sue the Honduran government under CAFTA as well for lost profits because the government's renegotiating these contracts. And obviously some of the companies that have been the most affected are U.S. companies that basically work in Honduras to exploit these contracts and that were a lot of them were approved based on corruption and cronies work alongside the former narco dictatorship and its uh, government. So, so I think I'll end there. I could say lots more, but um, I'll leave it there for questions and maybe a discussion too. Uh, Karen, what, what can you say about the Garifunas? Are some of these model cities, are they on land that's been taken from them, for example? Or I know there's um, been a lot of um, trouble in the Garifuna communities with these uh, investors. Yeah, so so the Zedes, one of the things that's been challenging for the new government is to actually understand where there are Zedes and where the former government actually signed documents to hand over pieces of land. One of the things that Juan Orlando Hernandez's government did is they destroyed a lot of public documents before they left office. And that's also been a major challenge for the government to understand, like, what did the government actually do regarding Zedes? What did they sign? What commitments were made behind closed doors? And so we're not really entirely sure where all the Zedes are. But the ones that have moved forward and that have been vocal against the government, they're not necessarily on Garifuna land. But the same sort of dynamics that play out, there are there there the Zede Prospera actually impacts a um, a community that has been in Roatan for centuries. It's not Garifuna, but it has Garifuna people that live in the community, as well as Mesquito indigenous people. So, and again, it's not Garifuna land, but all the dynamics, like the evictions, the threats, that it's it remains with this Zede specifically uh, in Zede Prospera. But I mean, the, the Garifuna recently were evicted by from their community in Punto Gorda, really close to actually where the Zede Prospera is trying to build its Zede on the island of Rotan. And that was carried out by a corrupt judge, again, that Ziomara and the executive branch of the government doesn't have control over. 
But it was very disappointing to see the police and the military involved in that eviction. But again, that has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, there are still a lot of, there's a lot of corruption in the police and Ziamata doesn't necessarily have full-blown control of the police. So the Garifuna issue is ongoing, as is a lot of the land issues that we're seeing in, in that we've seen in Honduras. Granted, I think the Ziamata government is very uh, particular about not wanting to violently evict communities or any protesters, and they do everything possible to avoid that. And the fact that that happened with the Garifuna is, I think, more telling of the different de facto powers that are operating inside the state than it is the actual central government and its ability to control everything. That was my presentation to Rakla. You can find the full version on their website at rakla.org. And just a few things I want to add. In the final part of my presentation, I'm referring to the violent eviction on November 7th of this year. Honduran police and military, all theoretically under President Zimara's command, evicted the Garifuna in Punta Gorda from their ancestral land. Six Garifuna land defenders, including Ofrene representative Melissa Martinez, were arrested. After a lot of outcry, all charges were dropped against the defenders, but the incident left a chilling effect. Why are evictions still happening under a new progressive government? Obviously, a partial answer to that question is that the judiciary is not under the control of President Ziamara and instead is the same one that was put in place under the previous government. But Ofrene says the evictions and the attacks have to do with the ongoing structural racism against the Garifuna people in the country, while also pointing to the judicial system's constant catering to the economic powers and interests of the tourist industry and the wealthy in the country. I think it's also both. I also think that attacks against land defenders, including evictions and arrests, will not completely go away under President Ziamara. The current administration, whether by force or through power negotiations, will be forced into deals and alliances with the economic elite. They, like all governments, are forced to negotiate power. Land defenders and environmentalists will continue to go up against economic interests and likely not receive much active protection or backing from the Honduran government. That is the episode for today. I'm recording during the last few days of 2022. I want to wish you all a fantastic new year. Enjoy the celebrations with your friends and family. Thank you for listening to the Honduras Now podcast in 2022. We have lots of great stuff coming up in the new year. This is your host, Karen Spring, wishing you many celebrations and a fantastic year to come. Hasta pronto. Cuando